We're going to jump right in tonight. Uh, we have several verses to cover, uh, not as many as this morning, uh, but still uh, full of the truth of God and great detail that we find in these verses tonight. We're going to be in John chapter 14, and we'll pick up in verse 16, reading down to verse 20. It was really kind of hard to find a jumping off place in this section of Scripture, but I think that verse 20 will be good for this evening of where we will end this. And hopefully, good Lord willing, by the ending of next week, we will be done with chapter 14, even though you know and I know that there was not a 14th chapter when this was written. I hope you never get tired of me saying that, um, but it's very important that we remember that uh, because we know that what we're seeing here is a continuation. This is, this is the upper room. Let's take our mind back there again. Let's not lose sight of where this conversation is happening. It is in the upper room. It's Jesus and his 11 disciples there, and he is beginning to tell them the truths um, about what it's going to be like after he leaves. His time is nearing an end, and he now is going to set his attention to begin to talk about God the Holy Spirit. And as we mentioned this morning, that in chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16 of John, we find in all the Bible the most consecutive, uh, the, the most detailed, and the longest flowing set of verses that speak about God the Holy Spirit. This is the, this is the, the greatest collection and greatest number of verses of the Holy Spirit here in this section. And there's a reason for that. We find it here in John 14. We will um, look at a possible reason why it comes here and not in another book of the Bible or another part of Jesus' ministry or in an epistle. Or, but why here? So we are beginning to look at, uh, as we go through these next several weeks, the role of the Holy Spirit. Let me say this. Um, because this is a, uh, something that is a spiritual pet peeve of mine, I guess if I can say that, is when I hear someone call the Holy Spirit it. He is not an it. It is not a magical feeling. It is none of those things. When we refer to the Holy Spirit, we are talking about God. God the Holy Spirit. He. It is He. It is part of the triune God. He is just as much God as the Father and the Son. And let us keep that in mind. It's not an it. It's a he. He is God. So, with that being said, let's pick up in verse 16. Let's read down to verse 20 and begin to look at what Jesus is teaching his disciples here in these verses. It says this, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also." In that day you will know that I am in, the, in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Let's pray. Father, we ask for help tonight. We ask that the Spirit of truth, God the Holy Spirit, would reveal the truth of your sacred words to our hearts today. And to, as we 
Look at these verses. Lord, lead us into truth. Lord, point us to you, that we would honor you and love you and love your truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. He says in verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. We find this term, if I was to ask, well, who is our helper? There would be a great chance that some of our answers would be, well, the helper that is in view is the Holy Spirit as our primary helper. But let me draw your attention to the word right before helper. It says another helper. So we have to look at this word, and, and when we look at the word helper, that some translations will use different words. I know uh, some will say the advocate, the counselor, the comforter, but here the NASB translates it as helper. And when we begin to look at the word helper, as it comes into this language, we find that this word in the Greek for helper is parakleton, or parakletos, however you, the form and the tense we use which is in English, it translates to a paraclete. And that word we're going to come back to a little bit tonight is the word paraclete. And what does this word mean? Well, para means alongside or beside, and kletos means to call. So if we took it to the, the most basic sense of the word, we would see that paraclete means to call to one side. And this is what Jesus is saying. I will ask the Father. Again, this is the inner working of the, the triune God in the Godhead. The Son will ask the Father. The Father will send the Spirit. And it will be a, He will be another helper. Let's look at this word a little bit more deeply. The word paraclete. In antiquity, we find that this word had a, a, a primary use. When you begin to think about paraclete in antiquity, the paraclete would have been like we know as a modern-day defense attorney. The paraclete would be the one that you would call by your side when you were in legal trouble. He would be the one who would come and be your advocate and represent you in a matter of legal, of a legal matter. And here we see that Jesus says, I will send another helper. But when we look at the, the original helper, who is that original helper? It's speaking of Jesus. How in the world can he be a paraclete? Well, let's look at it. The paraclete was the one who would be your advocate, again, like we said, to call by your side in a matter of a legal dispute. When you had broken the law, we needed a call, you would call the paraclete and he would come and be your advocate and represent you. He would stand in on your behalf. He would be your advocate in legal matters. And you and I know that we've all broken the law of God. We all stand condemned because no one can keep the law of God perfectly. And when we call upon Him, He rushes to our side. And like the paraclete in antiquity who would represent you in a court of law as you had broken the law, He represents us. He intercedes for us. He's our defense attorney, if you will, as He stands and intercedes on our behalf before the Father. What an amazing thought that this is. That when you got in trouble with the law, you called the paraclete. And you and I, guilty of breaking the law of God, He is the primary, the original paraclete who would stand in our behalf, stand in our defense, and intercede for us forever before the Father. 
First John chapter two, verse one says, my little children, I am writing these things to you that so you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In Romans 8, 33 through 34, who will bring a charge? Again, you'll see that these are legal terms. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather he who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He's our advocate before the Father. He is the one who intercedes for us. He is the one, as long as he justifies, there will not be a charge brought against us. In the original meaning of this paraclete, it is Jesus who's our original paraclete. He's the one who stands in our defense. That's a beautiful thought. Because you and I were found guilty in God's eyes. We did break the law. We were guilty. And we needed someone to come and stand in our defense. And it would be the one. The eternal son of God. The original paraclete. That when you call upon him, he stood in your defense. And now continues to stand in your defense. But Jesus says, I will give you another helper. And now he turns his attention to the Holy Spirit because now Jesus is just moments away from him ascending to the Father. I say moments. He will die. He will be resurrected. He will make his appearance to many people for 40 days and then he will be raised on that 40th day. From the time that he is resurrected to the Father to the time of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there's 10 days. That would be Pentecost and we're going to see that importance here in a little bit. But Jesus says to them, and we have to think about what they would have been thinking. He says to them, I'm going to leave. They've only known walking with him for three years and seeing him and being with him. And now he tells them that I'm going to leave. But don't worry. Remember, don't let your heart be troubled. Because not only am I going to go, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But I'm going to go to the Father. And I'm going to ask the Father to send you another helper. So that you don't have to walk through this life alone. You're not going to be alone when I leave because I'm going to ask the Father and He's going to send God the Holy Spirit to you to be your helper. And we know this, that after Jesus ascends, that it would be the Holy Spirit who would take the primary role of helping and guiding believers on this earth and through this life. But in a real sense, Jesus has never left us. Because in Romans 8, chapter Chapter 8, verse 9, it says this, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And here in this passage, we have the Holy Spirit being referred to as the Spirit of Christ. That Christ is forever with us, always with us. And that's the mystery of the incarnation, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Touching his human nature, he's not with us. But touching his divine nature, he's never apart from us. It is the mystery of the incarnation that is so amazing. But here he, he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to lead us, to guide us. And we find that some translations, I know the KJV uses the word comforter here. And the comforter in the Latin does not mean what we, believe, what we take it to mean. When we hear the word comforter, we, we think, well, that's someone who consoles you when things are going bad. 
But in the Latin, where the KJV would have got its roots to bring that word in, that word in that language would mean one who strengthens. So here we get this imagery that not only is the Holy Spirit the one who leads us and guides us, but he's the one who gives us strength to face these daily uh, trials and, and tests. And they're going to need strength because they're getting ready to face great persecution to even cost them their life. This is what he's telling them here in the upper room. And then he says that the Holy Spirit will be with you forever. That God, the Holy Spirit, is God and he lives forever and will forever be with the elect of God. This speaks again to our eternal security. The Holy Spirit seals the believer and guarantees our eternal inheritance. So we see the, the scene that's going on here. Jesus is going to turn his attention and, and, and begin to speak of the Holy Spirit. He's going to begin to teach more and more about the Holy Spirit because he's going to ascend to the Father. And he's going to be the paraclete in the presence of the Father. But then we're going to have another paraclete, another helper while we're on this earth. And it is God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ to lead us. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad I have another helper. Because I could never make it in this life. I could never make it in this world without God, the Holy Spirit, guiding me and leading me and teaching me and strengthening me. He didn't just leave us down here, but he went to the Father and sent God, the Holy Spirit, to us. And I said, well, why here? Why is this the section that he begins to speak mostly and the most consecutive and the most uh, numerous verses in a row here on the Holy Spirit in these uh, coming chapters? I was reading a commentary the other day and I, I loved the idea here and I think it, there's some truth to this. But we see that Jesus is getting ready to leave and he's getting ready to hand over the reins, if you will, to the Holy Spirit to be the one who's the, the paraclete among the church here as we live and move, and he guides us on earth. But it also could parallel something we find in antiquity. We find that in antiquity, there were moments where the leadership would be passed. It would be a secession of leadership. We see that Moses, when God has told him that he's not going to enter the promised land because of one act of disobedience, how unfair is that? It's not. Trust me. It's perfectly fair. But what did he do? He began to hand over the reins and he began to speak with Joshua and he began to say, listen, my time here is nearing. I'm going to die and now you're going to take over. And he begins to make this succession to Joshua. So the work can continue after he dies. And we find that Elijah, if you remember that he's going to get taken up to heaven but what does he do? He, he asked Elisha, what can I give you before I leave? And Elisha, what's a double portion of the blessing? And what does he do? He hands over his mantle to Elisha as Elijah would leave and go to heaven. The, the job must continue. The role must continue. So it's a, it's, a, it's a passing of this, a secession from Elijah to Elisha. And just maybe, here we see the same thing. That is Christ is getting ready to leave. He's going back to the Father. And maybe he's saying, <clears throat> handing it to the Holy Spirit and say, you're going to be the, the helper here now to these people. You're going to be another helper. You're going to be the one who indwells them, guides them, leads them, and teaches them. As I leave, here you come. It's a session that could possibly be in view here. 
as Jesus in this upper room is getting ready to die. And we see that this would be what would happen, that Jesus would die, but the work would have to continue, right? And that would continue with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Jesus is the original paraclete. He's passing over here the leadership of the church to the Holy Spirit who would now be the paraclete. Two paracletes, huh? One, the Son interceding for you on your legal behalf before the Father and the Holy Spirit helping you and guiding you and comforting you and strengthening you and teaching you, etc. as you walk on this earth. Remember we talked about that this morning in prayer. One of the ways that the Holy Spirit is our paraclete, how does He help us? He helps us in prayer. He intercedes for us when we pray, when we don't know how to pray. That's just one of the many ways that He's our helper. Then we come to verse 17. It says this, that is the spirit of truth. Let's stop there just for a moment. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He reveals truth. He teaches truth to all those who belong to God. You remember that the Holy Spirit, He is the one who inspired the Bible. He's the one who brings the truth of the Scriptures alive in our souls. We sit here and we've said so often as a church that we are so thankful that the, the beauty of God's Word has come alive in our soul. The truth of Scriptures has made known to our hearts and our eyes have seen this. How do you think that comes to pass? Because the Son went to the Father. The Father sent the Spirit, who's the other paraclete. And He is the Spirit of truth. And He is the one who goes and He points us to the truth, which is Scripture. Remember, Jesus says in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And it is the Holy Spirit who's inspired the words of God in the written form of Scripture. It is the Holy Spirit who points us to Scripture. It's the Holy Spirit who brings the truth of the Scriptures out and alive to our souls. And if you and I can sit here and say that the truth of God's Word has been made alive to our soul, we see the truth, we're growing in truth, then tonight we should say thank you to God. Because without the Holy Spirit, we cannot say that. What a gift of God. That to understand Scripture and the truth of Scripture is because God the Holy Spirit, the other paraclete, is bringing that alive to you and I in our souls. It's truly remarkable when we begin to think about it. And no one can understand the truth of God. No one can understand the truth of Scripture. No one can understand the things that are truth without the Spirit of truth. We are dependent on the Holy Spirit to bring the truth alive to our souls. We find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10-16. You may remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2 from a few Sundays ago because in verse 8 we read that if they would have understood what they were doing, if their heart would not have been hardened by God, they would have understood what they would have done and they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But now we come to verses 10 through 16 and listen to what it says. For to us, God revealed them through the, through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, 
not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now listen to verse 14. But a natural man, meaning the man that's not regenerate, that is the man who's in the flesh. Now, that's the context. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. This goes back to Romans 8. You remember what Romans 8 says? Talking about our inability to do things pleasing to God if we're still in the flesh. It says this in Romans 8, chapter five, or chapter 8, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Now listen to this in verse 7. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And here we come to Paul again in Corinthians and he says, a natural man does not accept the things of God. Again, how do we love God? He loved us first. He regenerates our soul. He brings the truth of the word alive in our soul. And that's how we understand those things. If you understand the truth of the gospel in that salvific way, it's because of God, the Holy Spirit, bringing that alive in your soul. Because in your flesh, in your natural man, you cannot do that. You're unable to do so. Again, let us go back and how dare we ever think that in our flesh, in our fallen state, that we can bring ourselves to the truth of God by ourselves, make this decision on our own account, and bring our heart to life on our own? Not a chance. You're asking for the impossible. If the Word is alive in your soul, if you love the Word of God, if you've seen the truth of God, then that's been brought about by the power of God the Holy Spirit revealing that to you. He's another helper. You need Him. We need Him. What an amazing thought. Because He who spiritually appraises all things, yet He Himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that He will instruct Him, but we have the mind of Christ. Isn't it an amazing thought to think about the things that you and I have learned in the last weeks, months, years, and to think that the eternal God was the one who had favor upon you and me to bring that to pass because it is His Spirit, the Spirit of truth, that allows you to see the truth. And in your flesh, you cannot do that. But those who are His, He brings that alive. Not only to understand the gospel message unto salvation, but also to grow in our truth and understanding in our Christian life. And when we do that, guess what happens? Like we talked about today, you understand the holiness of God, you understand the, the importance of obedience, and you grow in sanctification. You love Him, and you keep His commands. Let us really begin to ponder and think about the ways that the Holy Spirit is our helper. We don't have time to go through it all tonight. This is just the starting of this. This is just laying the foundation of chapter 14 and 15 and 16. But 
in our prayers to understand the truth of the gospel and to understand any truth that we find in the Word of God is by the power and the illumination of the Holy Spirit as sent by God the Father and the Son. Really dependent on Him, aren't we? You know what that does? It really brings you humbleness, doesn't it? Should. You're not smart. We're not smarter than anyone else. It's not like we're, we're brilliant people. At all. Oh, look at all the stuff we've learned in the Bible. Do you know why we have learned what we've learned? Because God has been merciful to us. That He has allowed the Holy Spirit to teach us these truths. He didn't have to do that, but how miraculous and amazing is it that we see the truths of God in more depth and our hearts begin to cry with more love and affection for Him. That's a mercy of God. And He didn't have to bring your heart alive. And He didn't have to make you love the gospel because it says in our natural state, we think these things are foolish. That's why when we go and preach to the world and we go to those who are lost, they think that the, foolish, the cross is foolishness. Because the truth has not been made alive to them in their souls. And that can't happen without the power of the Holy Spirit. You can talk all day long. You can say the perfect words like we said. If it is not accompanied by the working of the Holy Spirit, they will think it's just as foolish when you started as when you end. It is the power of the Spirit that brings the truth of God to life. And when He does that, it's nothing short than an act of mercy and grace. He says this in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Well, let me just say this right off the bat before we start to work through verses 18 through 20. There's some difference on what the meaning of verses 18 through 20 are. So even among believers, even among quote-unquote like-minded believers, you will find a little bit of variation of what they believe this is meaning. What is he talking about? I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Well, one view is that he's speaking of he's going to be crucified. He's going to be placed in a grave. But he's going to make an appearance to them again. He's going to come to them and reveal that he is risen from the grave. Some will say, well, he's talking about Pentecost here. He's, not, he's going to come to them again because remember, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. So with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ resides in us, so we're never alone. He's always with us. Well, some will say, well, that's talking about the end the last day when he comes and he's finally with us and our adoption as sons is final and complete. We're not orphans, we're with him forever. So which one is it? Well, I believe they can all be understood to be applicable here, but I think in the immediate context, we look to his showing to them after the resurrection. Let's look at it. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. You know, there's not any verses in the Bible that says he made an appearance to any non-believer after his resurrection. There's not one. You will find he appeared to believers. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared on one day to 500 people is what 1 Corinthians 15 says. And then he also links his coming to them as because he lives, you'll live also. 
And we've labored this point for so many weeks now that we are in union with Christ. We're in union with his death on the cross, that baptism. We're in union with uh, raising to spiritual life. But in Romans 6, he says, because of his resurrection from the grave, we are also joined with that resurrection. And because he lives, we live as well. So the immediate context here, the first time he comes to them, it will be after he is resurrected from the grave. He will come to believers. He will show that he is truly who he says he is. And what greater proof that he is who he says he is than him and his glorified body being raised from the grave? It says, you will know on that day that I am in the Father. He's in me. And because you live, I will live also. How many people claim to be God, do you think? A Messiah. Well, we know that historical tell, uh, documentation, and even we can read this, that many people profess to be a Messiah. Many people died on the cross. He was with two people on the cross that day. What separates him? What validates his claim is that he was risen from the grave. On that day, you will know. On that day when I come and show myself to you, you will know that everything I said was true. You will know that I was perfect. You will know that the Father sent me. You will know that you will go back to John chapter, uh, chapter 1 when he says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. That's right. I will rise it up. That's how we know. And we find that Acts 17 gives us a further example or further credibility to that. Paul is speaking on Mars Hill and it's, He's speaking to the men of Athens there. And in Acts 17, verses 30 through 31, what is the proof that Christ is able to judge that day in righteousness? Well, here's what it says. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's the proof. That's the proof that the sacrifice was accepted. That's the proof that the father was pleased with the son. That's the proof that he was sinless and spotless because, remember what Acts says? It was impossible for the grave to hold him. Why? Because the wages of sin is death and he was sinless and death could not hold him. That's the proof. They will know on that day that He is the one. All the, the things that He said will come to light there on that day when He is in His glorified body appearing to them. You will know that I am in the Father. The Father's in me. And because I live, because you see me in my resurrected body, you are in union with that resurrection. And not only will you live spiritually, but hold on, on that last day, you will live with me because you'll be in union with that bodily resurrection. I think the immediate context here is he comes to them after his resurrection, but he also comes to them in the day of Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ indwells our souls. And he finally comes for that personal reception that we talked about last week on the last day. So I think they all fit, but the immediate context is after he shows himself and appears to them after his resurrection. It's a wonderful day that we can think about, isn't it? I mean, think about the process. We've said it before. Again, I think it's amazing here. He says, I will come to you. And he says, you'll see me. We labored this point a few weeks ago. And 
Again, at first, at first hearing of this, it sounds kind of like, I think you may be wrong, but hear me out. The empty grave is not the proof that he was raised or that he was the living God. You say, excuse me? We always talk about Easter. We always talk about the empty grave and the empty tomb. Why did the Romans put a, a seal over the stone? What were they fearful of? That someone was going to come and take him. Why would they do that? Because that was, that was a thing that happened. It was common that they would go rob the graves. They said, let's put a seal on this. Oh, and by the way, there was also a seal put on a stone in the Old Testament. Type in shadow. Daniel and the lion's den pointing to the resurrection. That's coming. But we find that they didn't want anybody, they didn't want any of his disciples to come and take Jesus' body and make this claim and say, ha ha, see, the grave is empty, look. He is who he says he is. The empty grave is not the final proof that he's the Messiah who is the eternal son of God who raised himself from the grave and God the Father and the Spirit raised him as well. That's not the proof. What's the proof? I will come to you. You will see me. That's the proof. That they saw him in his glorified body. That's the proof, the bodily resurrection, the witnesses that he had, that he came to. That's the proof that he, he is who he says he is. And I believe that's what's in view here. I'm going to die. And we know that that's how, you know, I'll not leave you as an orphan. I'm going to die. It's going to look like you're all alone, but I'm going to raise myself from the grave and you'll see me again. On that day, you'll know. You'll know that I am who I am. The Father has raised me. He's pleased with me. And because of that resurrection, you have a resurrection too. Because I live, you live. I believe that's the immediate context here. Again, but he also comes to us in Pentecost through the Spirit of Christ indwelling in us. And he comes to us with that personal reception on the last day. This is where Jesus begins to, to teach about the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. I, it, when I start to think about these, I think about something, a video that I watched that is seared in my head. And I wish it wasn't. We've had conversations about Bethel. And if you are listening to Bethel, if you watch, but run. Stop immediately. There's a lady there who was teaching one day. Maybe some of you have seen this clip. And she says that the Holy Spirit to her is like the genie from Aladdin. And he's funny. And he's sneaky. And he's got a sense of humor. And that's seared in my mind. I'll never forget that. She's talking about God, the Holy Spirit, the eternal God. But that's the misconception that so many people have. He's just this mist. He's this magical thing. It's this it that's, no, 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 no. He is God. He's the one who brings our soul to life and the power of regeneration. He's the one who seals believers He's the one who leads us and guides us. He's our other helper. As the original paraclete, the Son is interceding on our behalf. 
Here we have another helper as we walk in this world. He is God, the Holy Spirit. Let us never forget that. And as the Son arises to the the Father, He does not leave us alone. But right now, that promise that He made in this upper room 2,000 years ago is still true today because He has sent the Holy Spirit to those who are His. And He is the paraclete for them. You know, we find the the Spirit even in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We find that in the New Testament, it says that Jesus, the image of the invisible God, He's the, all things were created by Him and for Him. <laughs> Nothing has been made that was not made by Him. But we find the Holy Spirit there hovering over the waters. He's been eternal. He is eternal. Let us not lose sight of that. Let us not put the Holy Spirit to the background. But let us understand, He's the one that the Son asked the Father to send. And the Son didn't want to leave us as orphans. He didn't want us to be alone. And He sent God the Holy Spirit to indwell you. Stop and think about that as we get ready to close. That God the Holy Spirit indwells in you and me as believers. How in the world do we do some of the things that we do throughout the course of the day as God the Holy Spirit is indwelling us? That's something that is almost unimaginable, isn't it? He's always with us, helping us, convicting us. That's another role of the Spirit is He convicts us. If there's no conviction, you're in serious trouble. If you can sin and it doesn't bother you, you're in trouble. Because that's another way that the Holy Spirit helps us. We don't have enough time. We'll get through these, uh, all the things that the Holy Spirit does, but not tonight. The main point of this tonight is this. He says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper. That he may be with you forever. We are guilty of breaking the law of God. And can you imagine us trying to stand in our own defense? What would you say? What would your defense be? Before the holy, eternal God. Romans 3 says all our mouths will be held silent and we'll all be accountable before God. What would you say? You would stand there before Him absolutely guilty and your mouth closed before God if you stood in your own defense. Well, I was pretty good. No, you weren't. And neither was I. There's no one good outside of Christ. That's what he says. There's no one good except for God. And then Paul says in Romans 7, there's nothing good in me except for God. Except for Christ, anything that you do that's good by biblical standards is because Christ dwells in you. That's it. Not because of you and I and our goodness. We have no goodness outside of the goodness that resides in us by God himself. What would you say? You're guilty. I'm guilty. But you've got one call. And when we are broken... When we understand how bankrupt we are, how poor in spirit we are, what do we do? We pick up the phone. We cry out to Him. We cry out for mercy. We call on His name in faith. And He comes and stands beside us like the paraclete did in antiquity. I'm in trouble. Are you guilty? I'm guilty. I can't deny it. I'm guilty. What do I do? call the original paraclete to my side. 
He stands in my defense before the Father. And I'm justified because of him. However, when he, as he's ascended to the Father, he's interceding on our behalf now. He did not leave us alone. But rather, he sent the paraclete. This is the whole point of this. He's sending another. It's the God, the Holy Spirit, to guide us, teach us, strengthen us, sanctify us, and illumine the word of God, which is the word of truth to us. He says, I'll not leave you as orphans. He came to them. But the promise we have is this. That on that last day, he will come. In the ultimate fulfillment of that. And we go back to this adoption as sons. That we have sonship with him. And Romans 8 tells us this. That the whole world is in travail and moaning until what day? The final day when the sons of God are revealed. And on that final day, he will come to all his children. Our adoption as sons will be complete. And we will live with him forever. Because of his resurrection, we will be resurrected too. Let us stop and think about our helpers tonight. What a time this would have been for the disciples as Jesus is getting ready to leave. But he says, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm sending another helper. God, the Holy Spirit. And it's for your advantage that I go. Because greater things you'll do by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as we talked about today. As we close, think about these two thoughts. The legal trouble we were in before the Father. We now have the most perfect defense attorney in the universe standing in our defense right now. Jesus the paraclete. But as you and I walk through this world, we're not alone. Because he sent another helper. God the Holy Spirit, who is our paraclete as well. Let us not lose sight of that, but let us be thankful for God and the mercy that he has shown upon us. What paracletes we have. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for this word. Lord, we thank you that the truth that has been revealed and the truth that you reveal to us is from your merciful hand. It's from you. It's from the spirit of truth, revealing the truth of you, revealing the truth of the gospel, revealing the truth of your sacred scriptures to our soul. Lord, let us never be prideful. Let us never be boastful. But Lord, let us have all humility to know that we are dependent on you to bring the truth alive in our souls and in our minds. And Father, we thank you that you sent the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit to us. God to seal us, to lead us, to guide us, to strengthen us, to illumine our minds to your truth. Lord, how unworthy we are to have that. Lord, thank you that your son 
is interceding for us, standing on our behalf, our advocate, even as we speak. And we have God the Holy Spirit as our paraclete as well. God, we're so unworthy. And we're so weak. We need you. We are dependent upon you. And Father, let us be thankful that you did send the Spirit. And Lord, we pray that we would grow in truth. God, we pray that tonight. Please, by the power of the Holy Spirit, bring more truth alive in our souls. Let us understand your word more deeply so we can love you more and grow in our walk with you. And Father, as I'm sitting here praying this, the unimaginable thought, the inconceivable thought that this week prayer is finding your ears because the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, even now is interceding for me in this prayer to reach your throne in accordance to your will. Oh God, help us to understand that and help us to thank you as you are due. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.